guys, it's April 8th, 2018, and this is your episode 140 of At Percussion. I'm your host, Casey Cangelosi, and with me as usual are Laurel Black. Hi. And Megan Arns. Hello. Ben Charles, how's it going, buddy? Hi, everybody. Doing well? Good, good, good. You guys, well, our guest today is an associate professor at Lee University in Cleveland, Tennessee. He's performed and clinicked all over the world, and I could list these places. There's so many, but just trust me, it's all over the place. He's been called a master of musical nuance by PAS's Percussive Notes and simply phenomenal by National Public Radio. He is a very active composer, and his latest CD is titled Phoenix. So please welcome Dr. Andy Harnsberger. How's it going, Andy? Great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, sure. Great to have you. Ben, you were going to say something, I think. Yeah, so I, I wanted to save this for when I actually started the recording. Andy and I go way back because I took a lesson with Andy Harnsberger, I think when I was 14 years old, maybe 15. Uh, and the story behind that is that my first teacher, Donald Bick, who taught at Virginia Commonwealth University, uh, was also one of Andy's teachers, and he had Andy in as a guest artist. And at the time, I thought it was cool that I got to help a professional marimba player put his marimba together. Years <laughs> later, I realized how lame that actually was. <laughs> but Andy, since we both share the same teacher, and I know that Mr. Bick was a huge influence on me, could you talk about uh, your sort of studies with Donald Bick and what you learned from him on a larger scale? Sure. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and it's it's interesting he, to me also because Mr. Bick was very much a timpanist, and Andy is well-known as a marimba player, and Mr. Bick was not by trade a marimba player. So, sorry. Oh, yeah. No, no he always even said, uh, you'll never make a living playing marimba. And uh, that's the way he talked. Um, but, and I, but the thing that was cool about it was that he really encouraged me and the other students that were there with me at the time to – uh, get involved in as many things per percussion as we as we could. I learned a lot from him as a timpanist and orchestral player, and that's what I wanted to be was an orchestral player. And then, um, you know, we never know where our career is is going to go. Um, so the marimba thing just kind of happened after I left Eastman. Um, I just started playing a lot more, and then I don't know if I'm if I'm pigeonholed as a marimba player, but uh, um, certainly that's where most people know me um, but from Bic I got the opportunity to to really uh, do the things that I loved but he also was a huge influence to push me into other areas of percussion you never know what gig you're gonna take and uh, you need to be prepared to take any gig why do all the teachers sound like that? I feel like my teachers are like, that's the same voice. Every teacher, teacher has a voice. I know every teacher has a voice, like a very particular voice. Ben, is that accurate? Or is that just like the general, like I'm making fun of my teacher voice. It, it sounds a little angrier than I remember. He, he kind of chewed his words. What do you think that, you know, our students, do you think they impersonate our voices? I bet they do. I actually sure. asked my students and only one would fess up to, apparently I have a walk that he imitates. <laughs> we we have a student who uh La La, i'm thinking of tyler he can imitate everyone so well and it's just it's it's pretty incredible i i think he is a hard time doing you and i because i don't think we have we're not that distinctive but uh the students who are distinctive man it's just hilarious oh, yeah. he's so yeah. he's so good at it yeah ben well, why don't you say something about this teacher uh i don't know he was just a, a very very big influence on me at a young age. I kind of got lucky getting set up with him as a teacher when I started high school. 
Um, and like I said, he took me to, or he set a lesson up with Andy for me. And then it was a year or two later, he actually uh, set me up to play in an Evelyn Glennie masterclass. Again, when I was like 15 or 16 years old, um, I was so young. I remember he actually had to come pick me up at school and drive me to the masterclass. Um, That's cute. And yeah, so he was he was a huge influence, and he actually passed away my senior year of high school right before I was going to take college auditions. Um, so that was very difficult. But I remember his uh, brother was at his house, kind of helping him, or helping you know clean stuff up to get you know the house sold and all that. And I was helping out, and his brother just sort of said to me and my friend Tyler that were there. He said like, "You guys have to do this. You have to continue on. Like you're his legacy, and if you don't do this, like." that little you know musical path so to speak will just die and his brother was not a musician at all so that was like a profound impact on me at a very young age like i have to do this awesome. if i don't do this this will be gone yeah awesome. wow yeah. wow well hey andy you know the cd phoenix which i've got right here came out i guess two years ago now and i picked it up at PASIC, and i've been listening to it it sounds fantastic it's a garnet house production which those of you listened in the past you might know that is john parks recording house and yeah it, of course it sounds totally fantastic and I've, I've really enjoyed it and you said it just got picked up or reviewed by fanfare magazine is that right yeah they did a feature on it they did a interview of me and a feature article on the cd um, and a review uh, that came out in um, January, February edition of Fanfare. Do you, what's your opinion as far as recording CDs nowadays? Obviously you've recorded a CD, you're continuing to record CDs. A lot, a lot of times we get in that conversation of, should you just go all digital? Should you focus on the whole, you know, video, video, audio only thing? It seems like that wave is, it's an interesting conversation that we have. And recently Laurel and I have thought harder about, yeah, let's make a traditional CD. I kind of am more inspired to do that now than I was a year ago. Do you have any, any thoughts to contribute to that conversation? Uh, I think having the CD is, is a fantastic idea. I like the idea of holding something in my hand and actually reading the liner notes. Um, you know, of course, as a professor um, at a university, you use it for um, a promotional purposes as well and things like that but um so having the cd to give to your colleagues is you know that's kind of a, a big deal um my my view on the whole um video thing is um if i put a video out it's going to be a live performance i want people to see that yes you can actually make mistakes and it's okay um i'm, I'm not really about getting a professional video done that is note perfect or and looks immaculate and sounds immaculate to me that's not real and um when when students go to youtube to look for uh videos of pieces and they see this immaculate uh production of a of a work they're getting the wrong impression of what that's really going to sound like live when they play it um and so I try, well, the only videos I have up are live performances. I don't even have anything up there that's not live. Um, Andy, so your CD is, consists of all original works. 
I'm curious of how long it took you to compose all of these and if you started composing them with the end goal of the CD in mind or if it's just a collection of things that you've written throughout the years and um, that became a theme for your record. That's uh, great. Yeah. Um, the first piece that I ever wrote was Vertigo and I wrote that in 1998 and it is actually on my first CD titled Vertigo. Yeah. Um, I mm -hmm. reworked it a little bit uh, for this CD, so it's it's pretty much the same piece, but there's some additions to it and uh, some rewriting that went on for that. Um, Words Unspoken I wrote in 1999, and that's probably the piece that I've played the most often. I've uh, performed that about 680 times. Um, so I didn't really, when I wrote those two pieces, I didn't really have an idea that it was going to be a Harnsberger CD of all Harnsberger works or anything like that. Um, and I actually started recording a different CD in the early 2000s and Words Unspoken was going to be on it. But then the project kind of fell through and I dropped it. Just uh, didn't feel like it was as important. And I'm glad that I did that. Um, it gave me uh, a lot of time to get uh, some other pieces together. So this just worked out perfectly, I think. Very cool. I, I had a sort of follow-up question to that. What inspired you to record Vertigo again? Because by all accounts, the first recording was very good. Oh, thanks. Actually, it was John Parks's idea. He hmm. said, you should redo Vertigo. And I, I think what he said was, you need to show everybody you can still play it. <laughs> I thought it was a great idea. I needed a little bit more time on the CD anyway, so it was, it was perfect. And it was nice to have some other piece uh, with ensemble mm -hmm. on the disc. Cool. Yeah, excellent, excellent disc. I was going to say back on the topic of do you record a CD? Do you just focus on videos? Is anyone really making money? Digital music, blah, 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 blah. There's a lot to say there. But the most successful setting I've had with my students in, say, studio class or a freshman techniques class, the best situation I've had as far as convincing them about a piece or talking about a piece is good recording, playing, audio, and score in their lab. I I feel like that's just the most productive thing. This, the most conversation comes out of that. And I've done the thing where we sit and watch a good video performance. And that's, that's, that's okay, but it's uh, there's something better about just good audio and the score, you know? I agree with that completely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's not just my opinion. That's just going from, you know, how, how much they raise their hand afterwards, you know, or, or their excitement for what they saw afterwards. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, it makes sense. You know, if we're watching a video, I think they say when you're, you know, awake and looking at things, 60% um, of your brain power goes to what you see. So if you're just watching Whoa. someone play, like that's what you're going to get the most out of. Whereas if what you're looking at is the score, you're going to make all these connections, I think. Wow. Between what you hear, yeah, and what you're looking at. I, I get the feeling of reading a book versus watching a movie. You know, if you're reading a book, your imagination is so active. It's like, that's what like reading the score is. You know, less information ends up being more in your head, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, what do you got there, Megan? Well, I was just gonna ask about your experience recording. You know, we had John Parks on the, on the show um, like a hundred episodes ago or something <laughs> and talked a lot about his recording studio and what he's doing down there in Tallahassee. Um, I'm just curious of your experience recording with him and with his students and 
yeah, well, well, what that was like. <laughs> I had a miserable, miserable experience. I'm sure. Right. <laughs> right. For a few reasons. One, the studio was like 50 degrees. <laughs> I couldn't play. I was cramping. So the first day, we only got like half of Palmetto Moon recorded, and I only had five days to get the whole CD done. The next day, I was so sore from cramping um, that I didn't play at all, and they tracked Vertigo that day. And Wow. Why was the studio so cold? Do you, know, do you figure out what happened? so ridiculous. It was crazy. They kept turning the heat up, and the next day, it would be cold again. Hmm. Weird. It eventually got up to like 64. And I was able to, you know, cram the last three days to get all of the rest of the pieces done. Um, but so that part of it was miserable. Um, the other part of it that was miserable is that John hears the grass grow and he <laughs> will not let you have one slightest mistake. So if you're playing these fast runs, and you don't even know that you've missed a note. And John says, you hit a C natural instead of a B natural. We need to do it again. It's like, are you kidding me? I've played it a hundred times now. Wow. You just hear him on the other end and he says, Andy, do you trust me? <laughs> very calm. <laughs> it's very relaxing. You trust me? Yes. All right. Just keep playing it until I tell you you got it. <laughs> oh man, that's cool. Oh, that's so cool. Gosh. It sounds so it sounds that, great. I mean, I feel the, like hey. I mean, yeah, the the finished product is like note perfect. Everything is perfect. And that's what his goal is. He's like you're making a reference recording and people need to know how this is supposed to sound. Yeah. What your ideas as a composer materialize as a performer. And um so I'm really happy with the final product. It's going to take me a while to get my nerve up to do it again because it was really, really hard. Yeah. Laura, what do you got? Well, what you just said about your making a reference recording reminded me of a conversation I had with our recording engineer here at James Madison. Last week, I was speaking with him about potentially doing a recording project in the hall. And um, I've never looked into doing that before, but something he said that was really useful was to think about who you're making this CD for and your level of like perfection that you expect from yourself. Cause he said the most frustrating projects for him are ones where the performer can't decide, oh, like, am I yeah. aiming for oh, absolutely okay. perfect or can I let some things go if the expression comes through, you know, and I'd, I'd never thought about that before. Laurel, that exact thing has stopped me from, like, even starting a conversation with a recording engineer because, like, because I don't know. It's like, wait, yeah, I'm gonna have. I just, I want to take as much time with this as I need to, and they don't have that kind of time, you know. Well, I think it's right. like, it would be so lot, rude of me. It's, it's almost easier if you're doing it yourself rather than flying to Florida State to record for a week because you know if you're <laughs> recording on your own, you have a bad day. Like, all right, whatever, I'll just get it tomorrow or something, and you can kind of splice on the fly almost like you're almost editing and recording at the same time but plus yeah. yeah and plus when i record it myself there's this like weird hiss in the background and the mics pop and you get all that what 
<laughs> As in, like, Sweet. I don't know what I'm doing. And... Oh, okay, okay, okay. Imperfections. Okay. I was going to say, Casey, like, I totally get what you're saying, Casey, especially since you've done so much recording of yourself, you know? Like, you probably have it down to a science. I bet that would be a totally different experience going into a studio. But I, but I mean, I don't, that's what I'm saying. I mean, it's like, Oh sure. It's fine for like YouTube, but Oh my gosh, I wouldn't, wouldn't dare, you know, make my own CD or something. It's just not even, not even close, mm -hmm. you know, just record it on this mic that we record the podcast on. It'll oh, be on fine. this blue snowball. Yeah. Sounds yeah. Great. The $60 blue snowball would be good. Yeah. yeah. Actually the $60 blue snowball does the voice on my end better than my more expensive, Yeti microphone because it just for some reason it's a lower volume mic and it doesn't pick up the speaker in the background. It's uh, funny how that can happen. Yeah. Yeah. I love that John Parks lists the audio equipment that he uses on the CD. And I was so happy to find the digital audio workstation he uses is the same one I use. Is, use. He uses Samplitude because oftentimes students will ask me, what DAW do you use? How do I get into that? And I, and I say, I use Samplitude. And they're like, what the heck is Samplitude? And it makes me think, oh, does nobody even use that? Or like, should I not be using that? Or like, I should probably be using Ableton or, or Pro Tools or one of those more more popular ones. But I always thought, no, Samplitude is really, really good. I really like it. And I really think it's great. So I'm so happy to see, oh, yeah, someone who does know what they're doing uses it too. Well, I had a quick question. Actually, not, not really a quick question, perhaps. But Casey has a student, Caleb, that did a class here a few weeks ago. And Caleb, I thought, did a nice job of talking about this. And I've heard Casey talk about this. And that is, how did you start composing? What drove you to start composing? And what sort of path did your compositional career take as an aside to your performance career, Andy? When I, when I first got out of Eastman, um, I wanted to write a piece that I could play at universities with students. And so I started on Vertigo. It took me a long time uh, to write it. It was the first thing that I'd ever tried to write other than uh, marching band shows. And um, so it was, it was really, really frustrating and really challenging. Um, but the reason I wanted to do that was because there wasn't anything out there. There was not very much music out there at the time. The only things that I could think of uh, even off the top of my head now, uh, that were available for marimba and percussion were like a marimba spiritual and um, Mike Burt's Shadow Chasers. Um, so I wanted something that was unique to me, and so I figured it, it sh I could just write it, and that would be the most unique. Um, so that's how I started, and once I started uh, the process of composing, I found out that I learned a lot about my inner musician that I was not expressing as a performer. And so it actually made me a better performer um, to write some things out that I was uh, felt strongly about. I need to say that I don't really f uh, vision myself as a composer. I'm not a real composer, um, in my opinion, because I don't, I've never taken a uh, a lesson on composition. I've only done score study, um, my own score study, and um, listened, done a ton of listening to a lot of other uh, composers that I respect. And I'm just writing for a medium that I know well. I don't really consider myself a real composer, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, sure. Of course, you know, we disagree, but okay. Yeah, I'd say it makes sense, I guess, but uh, disagree. <laughs> okay. No, that is a fun conversation, though. Well, it I definitely know, is. When we, when we spoke with Jennifer Higdon, Casey talked about, like, your what you perceive as your limitations actually become your personality as a composer. <clears throat> and so, like, yeah, you're primarily writing for marimba, but you know the instrument very well and obviously write very well for it, so. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it's it is fun to to talk though. You know, everyone has their different qualifications of what a composition is and what a new composition is. And if you're just writing in a traditional style, oh, you don't meet my qualifications of what a composition is, but you might meet these other people's. Or like it has to be new to be considered a composition or whatever. But it's 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 cool and you know that your qualifications for a composer. Um, you know, you don't feel you fit them, but you know we can sit here and, and think so. You well, know. if I can, if I can do the segue to the next topic, Andy, yes. how would you feel if someone commissioned you to, to write a piece for eleven gongs? <laughs> I think, I think it's, I think it's thirteen. Ben. Thirteen, 13 gongs. gongs. Maybe a, a very rare historical set of gongs that could be hard to come across. Would you? So, write that so that was a that was a really good segue, Ben. But I've actually got one planned. So we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna. We're gonna do two segues, so Laurel All right, and I have segue teamed number up. Two audience can vote on which they liked better. <laughs> yeah, we'll do a poll. Yeah, we'll go ahead and do another poll as we always do. And yeah, so you guys, what is this sound? This is uh, not really a what's the sound segment, but it's gonna tie into uh, what Laurel has to report on. So check this out. be my guess is the end of Turando. By... <laughs> yeah, Tarandot, that's right. Yeah, so and that happened to be Doug Smith. Megan, I think you know Doug Smith from Missouri. Oh yes. Yeah. So that happened to be Utah Opera. And I just I just Googled it thinking like, you know, I bet some percussionist has a video up of of one of the gong segments for for Tarandot. So uh yeah, Laurel, what is this little news item you found about Puccini's Tarandot? Yeah, so Puccini's gongs that he uh, had especially made for him for the composition and premiere of Tyrandot are for sale after having been lost for quite some time. So he began the opera compositionally in about 1920, and when he died in 1924, it was unfinished. So the end of the opera was completed by someone else and since then has had several endings rewritten for it throughout time. But typically the one that's performed the most is the one that was finished right after he died. These gongs, there's 13 of them, were lost for quite some time until a percussionist for New York City Opera named Howard Van Heining found them. So he had performed Tirando several times. Oh, and on that note, some people say Tirando, some people say Turandot. Yeah. And, and there's an argument about it. So I don't know which one is right. I feel like I hear the hard T more often, but I, I certainly hear the soft one as well. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard both. It doesn't matter. So anyway, Howard Van Heining wanted to find these gogs because he 
played the part to Tyrande so many times, um, and eventually he located them. And of all places, he found them at the Stivinello Costume Company in Manhattan, who had provided costumes to all these opera companies across the country. And they just so happened to have these gongs in a crate in a back room. So he rented them at first for productions and then later convinced the owner to let him buy them. And he paid $8,000 for them. So Howard passed away in 2010. So now his widow is in charge of these gongs. And for a while, she was renting them out to different companies for the production. But when they got lost once for three days, she decided to stop doing that and decided she's going to keep them or to sell them. So now Puccini's gongs are for sale. Curiously, you guys, how much do you think these would go for? Or how much do you think she's asking? I read it. So sorry. I read it. <laughs> I read it. <laughs> ben, did you read it? Yeah. I could um, share how much I would think they should go for. <laughs> $8,000. So well, it does. I mean, it does kind of bring in the question because you hear so many times someone saying, oh, you need to play Estoire du Soldat with this kind of bass drum, this size bass drum. By the way, Ben, that has an L, Estoire du Soldat, but that's okay. That's I thought old... this argument would come back. Yeah, that's an old, old, old podcast joke. But like people say yeah, that all the time, like, oh, no, you should really use exactly this because that's what the composer had. Like, that's what they had in their ear. And and sometimes I think like, oh, OK, yeah, sure, that's a good idea. But what if they had this clearly better sounding? <laughs> like, it's not like all composers have every choice on the planet, you know, so like are these special gongs, you know, right. are they are the, the are they the perfect gongs? It's not like. We have evidence Puccini had all these gongs to choose from and traveled all over and just found or, the perfect gongs. Like, no, the, right. that right. like I had the thought of if they were wood blocks uh, today, they wouldn't sound very good. You know, like they right. they might have even changed sound since Puccini heard them. So right, like percussion Laurel, instruments. You were saying the price is just outrageous. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, sorry, back, sorry, Laurel. Back to the price. <laughs> so. Uh... Howard's widow, Marlene, would like to sell these gongs for $2 million, and, which is a lot of money. And to go off what Casey's saying of, you know, you should play it on this, you know, historically speaking, we would probably view these as the quote-unquote official Trando gongs because Puccini had them made, and he was thinking of using these exact ones in the production um, what's interesting, though, is people who have heard them say they actually don't sound that good. <laughs> so, like, perhaps more modern-made ones um, sound better than these, and which brings it an interesting question. You know, do you go with what is historically the most accurate thing, or do you just make it sound as great as it possibly could? Uh, I will mention that part of that $2 million, she wants to pay someone to write a really percussion-heavy finale to the opera in honor of her husband, which I do think is a nice idea, uh, but still $2 million is quite a lot of money. <laughs> um, yeah. And the so the, the source that I have for this particular story is a blog called The Way of the Gong, which is written by Michael Bettine, who's actually gonna join us, I think two weeks from now mm -hmm. for an episode. Yeah. So I was just kind of researching him and found this story and thought it was really cool. Um, and he had sort of announced it on Facebook, 
you know, a few weeks ago before he wrote up this article. And there are uh, some percussionists, you know, especially a lot of uh, like opera orchestra players who had some stuff to say about these gongs. And one of them was Trey Wyatt of the San Francisco Symphony, who um, said, my dear friend in the Florence Opera showed me their Puccini gongs. They're made in Pistoia. They were interesting, but didn't sound great. And they later replaced them with tuned Thai gongs. And I received a call from an insurance company in New York a few years ago as this person was trying to insure these exact same gongs for $100,000. And I told them that was way too much. While they have historical value, I sell the 13-note Puccini gong set for $8,000. She'd be a hell of a salesperson slash car artist to get $2 million for them. Yeah, like how much of that is for the commission? How much is for the actual gongs? You know, And how much of that is just to gather some money at this point in your life. Yeah, quick, sorry, Laurel, quick interjection there, because you mentioned Trey Wyatt. Trey Wyatt owns California Percussion. Yeah. And um, yeah, we just rented the low octave of Thai gongs from him. And that was a crazy experience. Maybe I'll tell that story another time of like trying to get those gongs here. Because they're so heavy and, you know, they have to be shipped by freight and it was just a crazy experience. But Trey would know because he's, you know, dealing with gongs and he owns this rental company in this giant warehouse with all these instruments. So that's interesting that the quote is from him. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a, you know, back to her price. My gosh, $2 million. There's something Michael says in his little blog post is there are many different ways to measure value of something. You know, of course, these are historically significant. For some, they may be emotionally significant. And then there's their actual value. But it seems like, you know, if they were bought for $8,000 a couple of decades ago, like $2 million is just, is out of, it's just not even something to consider. Well, it's all, we're But at the same it. time, at the same time, if someone, you know, is a huge Puccini scholar or a huge fan, or, you know, maybe these, maybe these gongs, especially if they don't sound great, maybe they belong in an art museum, you know, I bet well, someone will pay for it. Well, and that's what I started looking into. Cause I was kind of curious, like, okay, like how much, of course we know there are big historical items that sell for a lot, a lot of money and one thing I think, Laurel, we found, we were poking around the dress from The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy's dress, sold for something like $1.6 million. Mm-hmm. So while I don't think it is a historically significant, <laughs> I mean, I guess maybe it's a historic piece of film, you know, costuming, but are Puccini's gongs that are used in Terrandot, are they more significant than that? You know, it's like, it's just, I don't know, it's... I mean, personally, I, I think the gongs are cooler than the dress, obviously, but like how famous is Puccini, you know what I mean? And how much do composers things go for? And actually, I found a really cool resource called the Beethoven Auction Database. This is at, uh, excuse me, this is at San Jose State University, the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Library, and they have this huge listing of all these 
things that have gone up for auction of Beethoven. So I grabbed just a few for you guys just to get some perspective of like, okay, what are composers, memorabilia things maybe worth? And I actually, I was kind of disappointed in how hard this was to find. I was trying to find like, you know, where's Mozart's, I don't know, certainly we have something of his, right? Like where's his chair or where is his, I don't know, something. But I did find a lot of Beethoven. So <clears throat> let's start with the first edition of Wellington's Victory, Opus 91, U.S. currency sale price. Anybody want to guess? The first edition of Wellington's Victory. First edition? Yeah. $80,000. $80,000, that's a pretty good guess. Yeah, it works. Opus 91, auction information, Sotheby's Auction House in London, lot number two, biographical reference, Beji Auction Index, 18, excuse me, 1985 to 1995. So there's like all this information confirming it. Sale price, $650. What? Yep. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, here's, here's another one. Let's see. Buyer, American Beethoven Society, sold to the American Beethoven Society on uh, March 11th, 2015. Biographical reference, Beethoven Journal, Volume 30, Number 2, Winter 2015, on page 81 through 82, with images. This is a lock of Beethoven's hair, and it sold for $10,268. Yeah. What are you going to do with that? I mean, where is it? Who bought that? Where is it? Well, I don't know, but, like, what are you going to do with the gongs, too? I mean, I guess you could say, like, oh, hey, this is the – this is it with Puccini's actual gongs, and people are saying, no, they actually don't sound as good, you know, and they they don't work as well. Like, is it worth $2 million to, to do that, you know, well, or to have that? Or would you just look at them? What it, what it comes down to, as, you know, we're kind of getting at here, is this is all – we're trying to put a price on or a price on the value of something, not a price on the materials of something, which right. it's, you know, it's, it's quote unquote priceless. Like there is no price. It's not like we're just auctioning off the copper used in the gongs or something like that. But I right. had two, two other interesting little anecdotes here. Um, and I don't know why this didn't pop in my head earlier, but I just looked it up uh, a few years ago, actually several years ago. I think it was around, let me find the date. Uh, let's see here. 1980, it looks like it was, Lee Howard Stevens purchased Claire Omar Musser's personal marimba. How much do you think that instrument sold for? This is not a Musser marimba. This is the Musser marimba. Man, I don't even want to guess. I don't want to sound stupid. Let's let our guests guess, Andy. Yeah, let's make Andy guess. <laughs> I'd say $5,000. $7,080. Wow, good guess. There you go. Yeah, which, I mean, you know, again, it's like, yeah, it's cool that yeah. it was his, but it's it's just a marimba. And if you go to perform it in a concert, like, you know, people aren't necessarily going to come to hear Musser's marimba played, especially if it's not Musser playing it, which obviously it's not. But there was another one of these recently that uh, outside of the percussion world that I wanted to share. And this popped up on a bunch of technology websites. Steve Jobs made a, a job application and it's a very, very poorly written little sort of one-page resume. Uh, and my, one of my favorite lines is it asks if he has access to transportation. And he says, possible but not probable. This is from 1973, a Steve Jobs half-assed job application as it's listed on this website. <laughs> sold for $174,000. And it's one piece of paper that just kind of happens to have his signature on it. 
Um, so yeah, again, it's like, you know, to some Steve Jobs collector, that's a big deal, but what are you going to do with a poorly filled out job application from Steve Jobs in 1973? Well, well, and that's what I guess, I mean, we're trying to do, like, we're not trying to just determine the value of the material, but like compared to like, okay, like Beethoven is definitely more famous and known than Puccini. And if his stuff sells for this much, are these gongs worth that much more, you know? It's just the the crazy thing to me though is either way the the Canterbury the Musser marimba or the gongs actually not that you would necessarily use them for this but they actually have a practical use you can see you can hear them you know and hear the past with the Steve Jobs job application it's just a piece of paper yeah of in course kind of poor condition it's not really yeah. all that interesting yeah there was a little story about Beethoven's skull it's actually this is not something I found on that that same database it was a Huffington Post thing. But his his skull is apparently up for sale, and it was held in a university in California. They were doing DNA research and investigating more about Beethoven's uh, condition, I guess. So in that sense, it might be practical. But again, the estimated value was it was something like it just. It, I want to see if I have it here. The estimated value uh, asking asking value is a hundred thousand dollars. And the company estimated it would sell for only ten to twenty thousand hmm. dollars. That's Beethoven's skull. <laughs> like these gongs can't sell for two. Anyway, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But sorry, it's also Laura, like. Are you done? Oh, sorry, Megan, go ahead. No, it's okay. So I mean, I think it's also just like where you know, okay, maybe there's some crazy collector that that you know wants to have these things, and it would mean a lot to them to have them. Right. I think also part of it is like you know where where will it be enjoyed by the most amount of people among a collection of other similar, possibly similar items? So like for the Puccini gongs, to me, it's like that should go in the Rhythm Discovery Center, right? Yeah, right, right. You know, and I think that a lot of those items, I mean, yeah, I I don't know. Maybe this person's just trying to make a lot of money off them, but Clearly, they're not like her family's history, but, you know, a lot of things are donated to art museums or to the Rhythm Discovery Center by a family member because they know they will be taken care of beyond their time, you know, and they will not be sold, but they will be enjoyed and valued by people who really appreciate um, that type of thing. So to me, it's like this person should donate them to Rhythm Discovery Center. <laughs> oh, for sure. Well, I think there's there's no argument there. You know, I don't think anyone would disagree with that. Yeah. And yeah, you just hope, you know, the uh, the amount that they're actually able to that get, which is maybe what they should. Right. It's like, let's say they can only get $10,000 for them because someone says, oh, that's kind of neat, but oh, they're in bad shape and they don't sound great. It's like, dude, it would be so much, it'd be worth more than $10,000 to have them in the Rhythm Discovery Center. So project for someone who wants to make their mark in percussion, get this person to donate the gongs. Exactly. (laughs) Not it. (laughs) Not it. Yeah. One, two, three, not it. Yeah. How about a, uh, Laurel, I'm sorry, were you done? We went on a lot of tangents. Yeah. No, we've covered it. Yeah, very cool. Good find, Laura. I thought that was really yeah, that was really awesome. That was fun and totally. I'm looking forward to talking to the Gong Man. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I want him to tell us all about that. It's very, very cool. Hey, does someone have a Facebook question for Andy? Let's get him back in the game here. Well, Megan said she had a question. 
I have a non-Facebook question. I have a question for myself. <laughs> Andy, I am curious about your trips to Colombia and Argentina. So it seems like you've been to South America several times in the past decade, and I'm just wondering what you went for and if those festivals were connected and what your experiences were like there. It was awesome. I loved uh, loved being there. I um, was invited to go back to Colombia again this year, and I'll I'll go to Brazil um, in August, um, and hopefully Mexico in September um, cool. for the um, uh, Chiapas Marimba Festival down there that they have. But yeah, uh, the um, the Latin people are really into percussion, and they they love. Um, marimba and um, it's really cool you you play for these really large audiences and everybody's very enthusiastic and um, the Argentina trip um, Angel Fret runs that and um, when I was there I met um, the tamborimba um, percussion ensemble and they run a festival in Colombia so the next year uh, they got me to come down to Columbia. And so you just go and you meet these other people who I run see, the, see. run festivals. And if you, um, I guess I made a good impression. So um, I keep getting invited back. So it's, it's really awesome. I've, d I've done Allen Hills before. <laughs> I think you did it the year before I did, I think. Oh, is that right? I forget what year I did it, but yeah, what a blast. I mean, just, yeah, what a great time. That's that, awesome. Yeah. 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 Very cool. Did you spend any time in Buenos Aires? No, I did not. I, I, I had some time at the end, and yeah. Andy Bliss and I toured Buenos Aires a little bit. And yeah, I'm like, cool. yeah, if you ever do it again, just take the time to just take a day and see, like, uh, the, the the graveyard with the Vita's tombstone, and it's just it's just gorgeous. And go to the opera house, especially tour oh. the opera house. Just pay for a guided tour. It's awesome. Awesome. Yeah, very very cool. How about a Facebook question, Ben? Yeah, sure. So we had a question from Parker David Stockford, and he says, of all the places or facets in percussion to emphasize, what would you feel is the most important to emphasize in during your undergrad as you prepare for grad school audition? Oh, I, I think the most important yeah, thing to, to emphasize would be to be well-rounded. Try to, like I said earlier uh, about Donald Bick, um, just try to get your hands involved in everything uh, just because you don't know where you're going to be in in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years obviously different schools have different requirements for graduate school so you know do your research and figure out um what the different places are requiring you know if there's pre-screening what's on the pre-screening and if you have to have excerpts together what excerpts do you have to have you know that kind of thing that yeah that's it i mean do your research do your due diligence and find out what places require and what they want want you to to have when you walk through the door. Yeah. I feel like a lot of times students have a perception that, oh, I just really need to be good at marimba to get into this school, or they see Andy is, uh, has marimba CDs and marimba compositions, so he must be really interested in hot marimba players only. And I mean, it seems like that always, it's, it's almost always not true, right? I mean, you need well-rounded players. You need players yes. who can play everything because you got to facilitate the ensembles and you know there's like a lot yeah. more to do than just the one thing the director happened to to stand out in <clears throat> absolutely yeah. 
It's a good question add, though, because it's a, a it's a common common question. So thanks so much for the question. If I could add two quick tidbits about this, one is Todd Meehan has an excellent article about. I think he just calls it college auditions, but it could be certainly graduate auditions as well. Um, but I think another big thing is going and taking a lesson with the professor. I think yes. it's like is mm -hmm. huge, and that does two. Th uh, it kind of accomplishes three things actually. One is it's sort of like a pre-audition. Like if you come in really killing it, then that shows that you're a good player. Uh, second of all, it shows the professor that you're actually interested in studying with them, um, which I think a lot of the time, uh, I guess this is sort of rolling in my third point, but like one thing that's sort of tacky and I get it, but it's sort of hard to, it's like a good thing to maybe avoid is telling the professor like, well, I really need a good financial offer to come here because everybody needs and wants a good financial offer. And if it's there, it's gonna be there. If not, it's not gonna be there. Uh, so it's like it's tough because of course we all want that good financial offer and you want to put it in the professor's ear like yes I need money to come here but I think it can just sort of come across as well I only want to come study here if it's a good deal sort of thing right the other thing too about going to study with somebody is it will show the teacher how coachable you are mm -hmm. you know take a couple of lessons or at least one lesson before the audition and then work on the things the teacher tells you to work on go back and show him that you can do the things that he asked you to do or she. And, and even if you don't go to that school, for one thing, it can sort of inform just another like, oh, well, I, this teacher told me my technique was really weak, that sort of thing. Like maybe if you're going to study with the teacher that focuses less on technique, you have that in the back of your mind that someone else said this. Um, and then also as a student, it could tell you that this person's a terrible fit for you. I think that happens too. You might not want to study with that teacher after the lesson. You mm -hmm. might not get along. Yeah, of course, of course. Ben, one more Facebook question there, right? Yeah, uh, we had one more from Parker David Stockford. He said, how can one as a performer, percussion especially, bring that theatric element to pieces when there aren't other effects available to you, i.e. lights, audio track, etc.? And on that note, Andy has a great piece for, I think it's six bongos, like three pairs of bongos that you put like a camera above and it's very theatric looking on the projection screen. I don't know if I have an answer for that. Um, I'm really into uh, the emotion of the music, you know, the emotion that it brings out of you. I think that um, you can say so many things through your performance and um, bring different things, different elements to the performance through the emotion that you put into it. So really, to me, that's what it, what it boils down to is, you know, how how strongly do you feel about this piece and what are you trying to convey? You know, you can say so many things through music that you can't say in words. Yeah. Yeah, I saw, yeah. I yeah. saw Michael yeah. Burrett perform yesterday and it's like there was no theatrical element to it. There was no lighting effects. There was no screen, whatever. But he was just theatrical in and of himself. It's Michael Burrett. He doesn't need that. And it's cool if that enhances your performance, but it's not necessary if you play well, I think. It's kind of back to what we were saying of focus on making a video recording or an audio recording, and we all agreed it'd be a really powerful experience just having good audio and score in front of you, and your you know your mind and imagination finds all these other interesting things instead of, like Laurel said, the video taking sixty percent of your brain power just to process what you're seeing, you know. Mm -hmm. So yeah, less less can certainly be more. Megan, I think you're going to tell us a little about Big Ears Festival. Yeah. Um, so 
with going back to my idea of, of current event topics, what I usually present on, Big Ears Festival took place this year, uh, last month, March 22nd. And we had mentioned there's a lot of tie-ins that maybe want to talk about this today. The first is that we had Andy Bliss on again probably 100 episodes ago. Yeah. And I remember he talked about Knoxville and uh, and the Big Ears Festival. So I think being friends with him on Facebook, I saw some postings that he was going to be interviewing the Bang on a Can composers who were featured at this year that at this year's festival and you know i just gave a topic on the bang can composers um julie wolf michael gordon and david lang so i thought it'd be a good time to just fill everyone in about the, about the festival so their statement from their website is that the big ears festival is a dynamic interactive experience that explores connections between musicians and artists crossing all musical genres while interfacing with film performance and the visual arts i think this is super cool because knoxville is not a giant city and i think it just takes over the entire city another article i i found had a quote um, that Big Ears takes place in a walkable radius of historic downtown Knoxville. And it has a range of ornate landmark theaters, refurbished industrial spaces, art galleries, churches, and clubs. And it creates, and it says it creates its own atmospheric climate along with a center of gravity. And I, I just love that these festivals, we have one similar here in Colombia. It's less focused on music and more focus on film called the True False Film Festival. But it draws in absolutely every area of the community. You know, musicians play before and after the films and are busking. Um, it, it, it calls on the whole city to volunteer. A large part, a lot of people will even take, a lot of professors will take the week off to volunteer for the festival and be on different, different teams. And it takes over all the venues in town. And I just think it's a really cool collaborative concept. So Big Ears focuses more on the music, but all the arts are, are involved. It started in 2009, but it has some skips in years. So this iteration was actually the seventh festival. And the other thing that drew me to it was an article on NPR this week that was not of particular interest to me since I'm not huge into jazz, but I thought I would mention it. It's called Jazz's Bleeding Edge. You can find it briefly in East Tennessee. And it has some neat descriptions of the festival, but it talks specifically about Milford Graves. Jason Moran talks about there's an unusually high quotient of experimental jazz at this year's festival. And also... The author says genre-defying artists, and some of those that he listed were Arto Lindsay and Bang on a Can All-Stars, which I already mentioned, Bill Fleck and Abigail Washburn, Laurel Halo and Ellie Kessler, and Julie Byrne. So anyway, I just wanted to mention the festival and also other connections would be that Laurel is from Tennessee. And then also, Andy, I noticed that where you are in Cleveland or where Lee is in Cleveland, you're only an hour away. So I'm wondering if you know anything about this festival or if you've attended before. I have uh, I have attended in the past, um, but this year I didn't get to go. I really wanted to go up and see Bela Flack was going to be there and uh, mm -hmm. Bang on a Can All-Star group was going to be there. And I knew Andy was going to be uh, conducting and working with them, and I really wanted to go, but uh, it, you know, as you know, it's so busy that time of year um, mm -hmm. with recitals and concerts and all kinds of things, and so I just didn't get a chance to make it. What was your experience like at some of the years that you went? 
Oh, it's it's awesome. I mean, everybody's into it, and it's packed. It's really great. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's a, a wonderful thing for the community up there, and uh, probably gets a lot of business for those uh, shops that are around, and you know. But yeah, it's it's awesome. It's really great. Cool. Yeah, I think you're right also about the businesses too. My favorite coffee shop in town, they always, I I, rem- I remember this is like two years ago or something. He said, oh yeah, True Falls is coming up. It's the busiest weekend of the year for us. You know, it brings lots and lots of people to town that might not be coming otherwise, you know. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. Thanks cool. so much, Megan. Yeah, ben, I think you have a question for Andy there, right? Yeah, one question. Actually, it's something that... Uh, when I first, I guess, became familiar with Andy way back when, I remember hearing about, and I know it's been a thing, but I've never really heard you talk about it, and that is, you're the xylophone soloist for a brass band or something, or at least at one I wanted to add the Jack Daniels brass band? Yeah, what like, what's, what is that? So, the, uh, I don't think they've really played that much anymore, but I played with them from 1997, I toured with them from 1997 to 2007. And basically what the group was, um, it's a a brass band modeled after a small town brass band um, formed by Mr. Jack Daniel in Lynchburg, Tennessee. So they took an old photograph of this brass band and then put it together. Uh, Studio musicians in Nashville, all of these guys are fantastic players. Um, right after I left Eastman, I moved to Nashville. That was the first city that I lived in. And at the time, Christopher Norton was the percussionist and mm-hmm. he had decided that he didn't have enough time uh in his college teaching schedule he couldn't drink enough <laughs> <laughs> i don't know the answer to that uh, <laughs> but andy could so yeah. <laughs> it's like we got i got your guy though i can't i can't keep it but i got i got your guy uh so anyway um yeah so i chris didn't want to do it anymore and so they asked me if I would uh, come aboard, and it was awesome. Really contemporary arrangements of some really traditional songs, and um, a lot of xylophone, a lot of sight reading, and um, it was just great. Got to play all over the country. I think I remember Super maybe cool. there was a recording of uh, the whirlwind that you played xylophone on. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Were, did you have a previous interest in like George Hamilton Green xylophone stuff or was that just something you sort of picked up for the gig? Uh, you know, I did some of it when I was in, in school with Bick. Um, and I think I actually played the whirlwind when I was an undergrad. Um, and so they uh, asked me if I had a rag that I would want to play. And that was the one that I chose. So. Cool. Very cool. Yeah, and that's one of the, it seems the lesser known ones because it's, I mean, it's not, it's not really a rag like triplets or, you know, any of these sort of ones we always think of. Um, yeah, and I think it's Joe Green that but, does. Yeah, it's quick. <laughs> yeah, it's fast. It's fun. <laughs> well, you guys, I have one little um, sad but just respectful news item to give. We have such a hard time keeping up with these because we don't always hear about them. So I have to thank our friend Fernando Meza for, 
sharing this piece of news. I don't know if you guys know Marvin Dahlgren, but he passed away just two days ago. Just remember, we're recording this on April 8th. He passed on uh, April 6th, age 93, 2018. So Marvin Dahlgren is former principal percussionist and assistant timpanist for the Minnesota Orchestra for 48 years. He was in that symphony, and he taught at the University of Minnesota for 35 years. Wow. So I I assume he's, he's Fernando Meza's uh, um, predecessor. So, yeah, he has he has some books, drum set control, accent and accent on accents in two volumes. And the one I was familiar with, which I think is the big big one that people know is called four-way coordination which is kind of looks like it's a drum set book but and it is it certainly is really useful for drum set but i've used it with students and i'll pull them open and just sight read them and they're they're really great just four rhythms four limbs and yeah i would definitely recommend four-way coordination by marvin dalgren so there's a really cool little interview on called the Lee Kamen Legacy Project. So Lee Kamen is an important historical radio broadcaster who really advocated for jazz music. So there's these nice series of careers on LeeKamen.com, and you can find them on YouTube as well. They're uploaded there. So thanks to Marvin Dahlgren, and uh, yeah, just a happy, happy farewell. Mm -hmm. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Fernando. I did get to meet him. Fernando introduced me to him years ago. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's very clear from the interview and in, in the meeting, I learned he's just like a really happy and jokingly funny guy. I know for a fact that that is the book at UNT that all the jazz majors just it was just hard for even the UNT jazz majors. It's it's way hard. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, yeah, yeah, I would totally agree. It's really hard. And you, you think, okay, I'm getting the hang of it. And you get to number, you know, four and you're like, oh, geez, man, that's suddenly really hard, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But it's great. It's, it's one of those books where like, okay, I'm gonna give all the possible combinations, you know, sort of like stick control, right. you know, students yeah. will just like fly down the page on stick control until they get to number six, you know? So right. it's not like, it's not like stone intentionally put number six, you know, on like that level of that difficulty curve is just like, well, by the math, that's where number six occurs, you know? Yeah. Hey, Andy, let's, uh, we're going to wrap here in just a minute, I think, but is there anything coming up that you're doing our listeners could maybe look out for or anything we could plug for you? Uh, let's see. I just, um, finished a marimba duo called Serpent that, um, Adam Blackstock commissioned me to do. Yeah. So I saw the recording. Uh, uh, yeah, we just premiered that on March 19th. Um, so that'll be available. Um, I'm performing at the Arkansas Day of Percussion on May the 5th. And uh, doing some composing this summer. I just finished another piece for marimba and percussion trio. Uh, just finished last night, actually. Great, um, great. So uh, that, be on the lookout for that. I don't know when I'll play it, but um, it's called Unbreakable. Great. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks so much. And you guys, you can find all this good stuff at www.andyharnsberger.com. So, hey, man, Andy, thank you so much for joining us. It's great thanks to chat with invitation. you. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah. It's great you're being here. Very welcome, and congrats on all the great happenings you're doing and all your activities. And Megan, Laurel, and Ben, thanks so much. Yep. Thank you. Cool. Okay. We'll catch you on 141, everyone. Bye-bye. Sounds good. Bye.